The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. In the days since the Taliban overtook Kabul, the United States has been evacuating tens of thousands of Americans and Afghan refugees. The White House says that since the end of July, they have successfully evacuated more than 100,000 people. But now, the next step in this process presents a big question, one that has become a political flashpoint. Where will all these Afghan refugees go? And with such a high influx of refugees to process, how can we ensure that they've been properly vetted? Some Republicans and Democrats, too, worry that too many Afghans who have helped the U.S. in the past 20 years of war will be left behind. Others, mostly conservatives from nativist, anti-immigrant factions of the country, worry that too many refugees will be allowed to come to the U.S. The Biden administration has been messaging that the influx of refugees will not lead to any unvetted Afghans entering the country. We're conducting thorough uh, security screening and the intermediate stops they're making for anyone who is not a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident of the United States. Anyone arriving in the United States will have undergone a background check. And, and we must all work together to resettle thousands of Afghans who ultimately qualify for refugee status. The United States will do our part. And we are already- but they are in a tough spot as they try to help Afghans who helped the U.S., while also ensuring each person undergoes significant vetting and security checks. So how is the Biden administration handling the surge of refugees? And how might the political discourse of this moment play out as more and more refugees make their way to the United States? This is Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. The Biden administration has been touting high numbers of Americans and Afghan refugees that are being evacuated from Afghanistan every day. To reiterate, a total of approximately 19,000 people were evacuated from uh, Kabul uh, over a period of 24 hours that, of course, ended early this morning. Uh, this is the result of 42 U.S. military flights, which carried uh, approximately 11,200 evacuees and 48 coalition flights, which carried 7,800 people for a total of 90 flights out of Kabul, which if I get my math right, that's approximately a flight every 39 minutes. I believe the Department of Defense gave that statistic. But those numbers have left a lot of unanswered questions, particularly how many people are still waiting to be evacuated? The U.S. actually won't say an exact number of how many people are trying to get out, but there's tens of thousands of people. That's Holly Bailey, a national correspondent for The Washington Post. She's based in Minneapolis and has been following the influx of refugees around the country. A lot of the people that the U.S. is trying to help get out are people that assisted the U.S. military during the war there over the last 20 years. We're talking interpreters. We're talking people that worked with programs as varied as USDA agricultural programs. A lot of them were approved under special immigration visas. CIVs is what most groups call it. And a lot of them applied many years ago. They've been stuck in this pipeline. And now it's turned very chaotic as they try to get out of the country because 
There's a fear that anybody that worked with the United States, their lives are in danger at the hands of the Taliban. And there's also been some sort of help with women and children, especially women, given the strict societal guidelines that are imposed by the Taliban, women that are going to college, women who are trying to have careers are seen especially at risk. So what's the latest on the progress the U.S. has made on getting people out? As of Wednesday morning, according to the White House, just over 80,000 people who had been approved under the CIV guidelines had been gotten out of Afghanistan. But the question is, how many people are left? And like I said before, the U.S. has been very cagey on how many people there are left to get out. President Biden has at least indicated that there might be a sort of shifting timeline. Initially, the plan was to try to get everybody out by August 31st. But President Biden in his speech on Tuesday seemed to indicate that that number may be, that date may be in flux, that it could be that the changing conditions on the ground means it speeds up. It's just really unclear. As efficiently and safely as possible. We are currently on a pace to finish by August the 31st. The sooner we can finish, the better. Each day of operations brings added risk to our troops. But the completion by August 31st depends upon the Taliban continuing to cooperate and allow access to the airport for those who were, trans- were transporting out and no disruptions to our operations. In addition, I've asked the Pentagon and the State Department for contingency plans to adjust the timetable should that become necessary. I'm determined to ensure that we complete our mission, this mission. I'm also mindful. So once we've evacuated people from Afghanistan, where are they going? Where are we bringing them? Essentially, all these people are being taken to processing centers or bases in Qatar and places like that. And from there, they are taken to three military sites in the United States that have been announced by the Pentagon. One is Fort Lee in Virginia. Another is Fort Bliss in Texas. Another is Fort McCoy in Wisconsin. And, you know, we've started to see some of the arrivals in recent days in Wisconsin. It's unclear the exact numbers. But essentially what's going to happen is that these families, these people will be taken there. And from there, they work with refugee settlement agencies around the country to place them in communities and in temporary housing to help get their lives resettled in America. And in trying to get their lives resettled, one big complicating factor here is obviously the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and the rising case numbers in many places across the U.S. So what problems has the pandemic created for getting these refugees processed and housed? Well, it's quickly turned a bit political. There's been a lot of concerns about whether these people are vaccinated and what kind of danger they might be bringing into the communities that are already struggling with the surge from the Delta variant. So you've heard President Biden and other U.S. officials in recent days emphasize a couple things. One, that they're vetted for security reasons, and also that they're all going to be inoculated against COVID-19 so as not to sort of introduce certain dangers into these communities where they're going. But there's also just various issues with we're already seeing sort of a shortage of housing across the country. And some of the refugee settlement groups that I've spoken with in recent days have been struggling to find temporary housing because, you know, housing rents are so expensive and there's just a struggle because it's also happening so quickly. Usually these groups have 
and upwards of several weeks or sometimes months to know that they're going to be resettling a family. And in some instances, they're getting 24 hours notice of whether they can accept a family to help them resettle. So in your conversations with these refugee organizations, have you encountered any particular stories that have really stuck with you, any refugees that you've spoken to whose stories paint a picture of this humanitarian crisis and and the refugee experience? You know, there's a woman that I talked to here in rural Minnesota who was in Afghanistan and she ran a USDA program and she's been sort of desperately trying to get out people that she worked with for many years now, she and her wife. And from her home in rural Minnesota and just trying to do paperwork. And she's been fielding calls from people who are in Kabul and desperate to get her advice on how to get out. And yesterday I got an email from a woman who read our story who was looking to contact her because she was aware of a family that had worked with the USDA and was desperate to get out. But they had been told that they wouldn't be approved for a special visa because they hadn't worked directly with the military. And the two connected. And it just shows as there's sort of this unknown about when we're going to leave Afghanistan and if we're going to get all these people that are desperate to get out, out, people are still desperately fighting and trying to have hope for these people, people on the other side of the world and rural communities fighting for these people. One of the things that's been really striking to me is that President Trump really sought to limit the visa program into the United States, limit the number of refugees allowed, and specifically targeted places like Afghanistan and reducing the numbers of people allowed to come here. And so for several years, the numbers have been very low. And part of the problem is that many of these people applied and have just been waiting for years. The governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, last year, or two years ago, I should say, sought to block the number of immigrants coming into Texas saying, we've taken our share and we're, you know, also facing this crisis of migrants at the border and our resources are stretched thin. A federal judge basically threw that out, that argument out. But it sort of speaks to the political atmosphere in some of these states. And so what's been really striking in the in the past week or so, as we've seen these terrifying images of people hanging off planes, desperate to get out of the Kabul airport, is that you're seeing conservative governors across the country essentially opening their states and saying, we're willing to take people in. They see it as a moral imperative. And that was sort of, it's been sort of surprising, especially to these refugee settlement agencies that usually are used to the sort of really harsh political debate about this. More of my conversation with reporter Holly Bailey after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. I wanted to talk more about the harsh political debate Holly mentioned around the influx of refugees. It's created this really interesting political dynamic where many Republican governors have said they would welcome Afghan refugees to their states, yet parts of the party that backed Donald Trump's America First agenda are warning that these refugees could pose a security threat. Holly says Republicans have to contend with both arguments. 
Essentially, I think Republicans are trying to walk two different lines. It's very tricky because they do support the mission in Afghanistan, and they do support that these people worked with the U.S., and a lot of Republicans have said, we can't leave these people behind. But at the same time, they're sort of raising these security risks and raising these questions about vetting. Um, there's been sort of an interesting dynamic playing out in Wisconsin where the governor, Tony Evers, who's a Democrat, has said, well, of course we're going to welcome people, and of course we're going to help resell these people who basically served on behalf of the of the United States, but then in these communities, in this community around Fort McCoy, which is in southwestern Wisconsin, and also an area that used to be sort of Democrat, but swung very strongly towards Donald Trump in the last two elections. You have local Republicans on the ground saying, what about security? And what are these people going to do? And is this going to tax our resources in the community? And sort of trying to dance this delicate dance of not trashing these people who worked and helped the United States, but also kind of trying to toe this political line of being stronger and, and America first and that sort of thing. And so Donald Trump has sort of waded into this very, very slightly, but I think we're seeing only the beginnings of this debate about this. You know, you've spoken about the reactions of local leaders and governors and people in Washington. What about the communities where this is actually unfolding? Do the people of the communities have a, a different reaction to these Afghan refugees arriving in their towns? Yeah, definitely. Texas is a great example of this, where the issue of refugees has been this political football banded about by the state's top conservative lawmakers, including Governor Abbott. Amarillo, Texas, for example, is a place that is very multicultural and you would never expect that. But it's, you know, there's a lot of charity groups and a lot of refugee resettlement agencies that welcome families there. Um, and some of the schools, I believe it's six different languages are spoken because of different refugees coming in. I talked to a woman with Refugee Services of Texas, which is an agency based in Austin, but it helps place families in places like Houston and Dallas and Amarillo. And she said that essentially since these terrifying images have emerged from Afghanistan, they can't keep up with the number of calls from people who are offering to open their homes and trying to volunteer. I mean, Texas is a COVID hotspot right now. And they're being very careful about social distancing and that sort of thing. And so this past weekend, they were scheduled to hold a training. They had so many people sign up. It was over 200 people that they had to move it online and do kind of a Zoom virtual meeting. And she said one of the things that was really striking when I talked to her, she just said what's what they see is very divorced from the political rhetoric that you often hear banded about by often conservative lawmakers, that it's very much what they see of people trying to open up their homes, random people, and being so gracious and donating money and goods. And it's just very different. It's very divorced from the reality of the politics of it. What about Biden and the Democrats? This is a tricky issue for them. Has President Biden addressed the process for welcoming Afghan refugees into the U.S.? Is he expected to take a different approach than the Trump administration did to vetting these refugees? Essentially, there's been a lot of pressure on, on President Biden to expand the number of visas allowed for refugees to come into the country. One of the issues is that, and the criticisms and, and that we're probably going to see play out in the election is, you know, how this process was handled. And there's a lot of questions of why these people weren't evacuated out of Afghanistan before the Taliban really took over control of the country and why President Biden placed so much faith 
and the Afghan president and the government believing that maybe they could withstand the Taliban. And essentially, President Biden has said that no one thought that the country would fall this fast and that a lot of people didn't want to leave. I know there are concerns about why we did not begin evacuating Afghans civilians sooner. Part of the answer is some of the Afghans did not want to leave earlier, still hopeful for their country. And part of it because the Afghan government and its supporters discouraged us from organizing a mass exodus to avoid triggering, as they said, a crisis of confidence. This is going to be an issue that is fought out in the campaigns. We already know that Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, who has also supported limiting the number of refugees coming to the country, and also faced criticism about this because his father was a Cuban immigrant. He has said he wants to hold hearings on this and how this was handled. And so this is just going to be a political football. And there's likely going to be questions and attempts to link rises in crime or rises in COVID numbers to these people arriving. That's it, That seems to be what many people are anticipating. And I guess we'll just have to see what happens. All right, Holly, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Wait, before you go, I want to mention an episode of another Washington Post podcast that I think Can He Do That listeners in particular will be really interested in. Columnist James Homan talked to John Bolton. Yes, that John Bolton, a frequent character on Can He Do That in the Trump years. On the show, Bolton says that U.S. policymakers have mishandled our relationship with nuclear-armed Pakistan for years, and that now, without a U.S. presence in Afghanistan, the risks from Pakistan are huge. Bolton advocates for eliminating U.S. aid to Islamabad and turning our attention to Pakistan's nuclear stockpiles so that they don't fall to terrorist hands. And I think, look, we've equivocated for a long time. I I don't like having to do this because I do think it's risky. But if we don't do something like this, we'll just keep doing what we've done the past 20 years, which has manifestly failed. For more from John Bolton, find this week's episode of Please Go On with James Homan wherever you listen. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Sharla Freeland and Arjun Singh with logo art from Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon. The new Super Beats Heart Shoes Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeats, B-E-E-T-S dot com and save 15% with promo code DEAL.